Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. It is so great to be with you once again today as we continue our series called Kingdom Virtues, a series all about the the goodness that God wants to to produce in our lives that would come out of our lives as the the fruit of, of how we live. And today we come to a virtue that, unlike last week, is a word often used in our culture. The word is justice the kingdom virtue of justice. And justice as a virtue is so important because as you might realize, our world is crying out for it. In in so many places we are reeling from episodes where justice seemed to be denied, be it racial justice or social justice or occupational justice or environmental justice or poetic justice or the Justice League. You know what I mean. In every segment of our broken planet, there is this undercurrent. There is this profound longing where we cry out, when will it be fair? When will it be just? And it's that awareness of inequity that seems to war against our wiring as human beings because we just know deep down it shouldn't be this way. And a good question I think is, well, why do we feel like that? Well, it's because we're made in the image of the one who is just, of the one who is justice, who is truth. But we also know that that image has been tarnished by broken and sinful humanity, both around us and in us. So we long for justice, but we're really bad at acting justly, aren't we? I mean, we see it from our earliest memories, uh, like for me growing up with my brother. If my brother and I had to share something, invariably someone, most likely him, uh, someone would cry foul. And he'd be like, why does he get to have the biggest piece of pie? So, so my parents, in response to that, put this, this solve in place for us because uh, it was a consistent problem. And they said, okay, one of you gets to cut the piece of pie in half. The other one chooses which piece. And my brother, being the stickler for fairness that he is, would produce then a series of tools uh, high-tech baking scales for weight, you know, he'd use a compass, he'd get some measurements, surveying tools, levels, a Richter scale, I don't know why he needed that. But once he was finished with all of his measurements, he would find our sharpest knife. And, and if he had a laser, he would have used it, but it was usually just a knife, our sharpest knife. And after all of that research, he would come to his conclusion and he would make the cut and then I would pick. He had to make sure that I would not get a crumb more than I deserved. It had to be fair. That is sibling justice. Now move out from there and into a culture that seems to constantly increase uh, in distance from itself and God from itself in the God of justice. And what you end up with is all 
of these inequities. Individuals treating other individuals differently because of, of race or status or age or gender or some other baseless prejudice. It's like we invent ways to devalue each other. And all of that devaluing, it wars against the Imago Dei, the, the image of God in us. And knowing that, that we carry the Imago Dei, we carry then a profound eternal value. Thus, prejudice of any kind should have no place among God's people. Yet sadly and shamefully, it has at times even found its way into God's church. Our world tries to diminish the value of humanity over and over and over. But God's people are still called to declare the great worth of every human individual. We are made and loved by God. We are God's treasures. That's what we proclaim. So that's what we're proclaiming. Here's what the world is proclaiming. And in that tension, we end up crying out then for justice, seeking justice. And we wonder, where are you, God of justice? Where are you amidst what appears to be, at least to us, it looks like a whole lot of injustice. And, and I would not pretend to offer quick fixes to those questions. Ultimately, these are the, the deeply felt problems of sin expressing itself in a very broken world. And true justice, pure justice, will ultimately never be seen fully until we are in God's kingdom. We must understand this. However, this kingdom ideal of justice remains. The virtue of justice remains, and we who desire to walk with Jesus are called to seek it out and to bring it forth. So we're going to look at some parables today where Jesus reveals a group of people that are seeking justice. And the first thing that we will notice is that God's justice begins and ends in a very specific way. God's justice begins with prayer. Begins with prayer. Now, this is not so strange when you think about it. If you want earthly justice, just justice for, you know, us regular folks down here, humanity, what do we do? We go to an earthly judge. We go to Judge Judy, or we go to Judge Joe Brown, or we go to Hot Bench. I think that's the thing. I, you know, that, that's where you go. <laughs> Those judges are found in an earthly courtroom. But when it comes to heavenly justice, look at this. Psalm 84, 12, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. The court of the Lord is the presence of God, the place of audience with the King. And we enter that court through prayer. And here's the amazing thing. If we want an audience with the judge of eternity, 
with the Lord of all creation, with the maker of heaven and earth, we have a 24-7 access through prayer. That is God's courtroom. And as we look at this passage first, right here from the book of Luke, we will see specific types of prayer that lead us to some understanding regarding God's justice. So here's the first thing. God's justice comes about through persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Let's uh, look at Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Let's read this together right where you are. Big voices, go. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This passage reveals a couple of things to us. One, that God is a just judge. Now that's an important understanding because I'm not a just judge. God knows all the facts. God knows all the motives of a person. And God even knows every second of a person's life that led to that circumstance. God can look at every part of a human being, body and soul and spirit. And in doing so, God can then respond to that person with absolute justice. I can't do that. Neither can you. And because of that, we are often woefully equipped to judge, and we can easily misjudge. That's why Deuteronomy 16.20, in the original language, it tells us to seek justice justly. <laughs> seek justice justly. And that's our problem. Oh, yes, I seek justice, but because of my own baggage, I don't seek justice justly. I don't do it well. So in my quest to get justice for those who hurt me, I can actually end up causing pain to others, my own pain to others, all because I was trying to bring about justice, but I was doing so unjustly. So in response to that, and I understand this, our culture would now say to us, well, then don't judge ever. Don't ever judge anything ever. But if we take that to its logical conclusion, does that mean we just walk around going, well, it's all good. Rape, it's good. Prejudice, it's good. Theft, totally good. Murder, good. I'm not judging. That doesn't make sense either. 
I mean, that's like the purge, right? I mean, that, that, we're not going to live there. That certainly isn't a reflection of how we're to engage God's justice. Yet when we cry out for justice, we are actually making a judgment. We're saying prejudice is bad. That's a judgment. It's a right judgment, but it's a judgment. So where do we go? Okay, let's look at Matthew 7, 1 to 2. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's saying that the way I judge others is the way I will be judged. So, how do I want to be judged by others? Here's how. I want to be judged accurately. Accurately, rightly. That, that I would actually see clearly, as this passage goes on to say. Now, when we talk about the word judgment, I'm not talking about eternal judgment. None of us are qualified for that. Only God can deal with all of those things. That's God's realm. What I am talking about is when someone comes to a conclusion about my life, I want that conclusion to be accurate. I want it to be fair. I want it to be responsible. Paul and I will run into this sometimes when, uh, sometimes as pastors, when people hear that word, they immediately assume that we are something that we're not. They'll assume our family is like this blend between Little House on the Prairie and Sister Wives. And it's not for a lot of different reasons, okay? Um, folks think that we, we just spend every moment of every day praying together and singing, and we never get into arguments, and nothing bad has ever happened to us in our lives, and we only watch 1960s Disney movies or Bible Man, and, and we float around the house on clouds, and we, we, are, we go to bed quoting scripture, and we wake up with breath that smells like frankincense, None of that is true, although the floating around on clouds would be really great. But it's an inaccurate judgment. Is Jesus the center of our household? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, and by his grace, I think we're loving him more every day. But that other impression, it's just, it's just not reality. It's an inaccurate judgment, and as such, it's not helpful. So when people come to a conclusion about my life or your life, I think we want it to be fair. We want it to be accurate. And I know I just gave you a silly example, but I can also tell you of many times that I have been judged so inaccurately that people have said I was something I, I just deep down know I'm not. And many of you have experienced that in your life. And if anything feels like injustice, it's that, right? And so when I understand that, I again realize that in so many instances, as this passage goes on to describe, I do not have all the tools to judge accurately. And so this passage tells us, if you don't have those tools, then you can't do it. Then you have no business judging. If you can't find a way to judge accurately, you have no business doing so, which is why regarding this subject, we must then become reliant 
on God over culture and dependent on God over self. We've got to lean on him because God is the only just judge. And as this parable shows us, God brings that justice to the unrelenting, to the persistent, to those who don't take no for an answer. But this is about a very particular kind of persistence. It, It is a persistence in prayer. And this parable tells us that God's justice is is not just brought about in one moment, but it's brought about by a persistent cry that the seeking and the work and the crying out, it's somehow part of seeing God's justice. And we really see two elements in this parable. We see both the need for the right prayer and the need for the right judge. The widow had the right prayer, the wrong judge. Eventually, he even came around. But sometimes we don't even get that half right. Not only is it the wrong judge, it's the wrong prayer. I think of uh, when we were youth pastors, I wanted to do something kind for some of the the senior citizens in our church. And I knew a a lady who had a a very extensive garden, elderly lady, and she had told me it was just going to be too much for her to keep up with the weeds. It's just too much uh, yard and garden. So I I brought a whole group of teenagers together to to weed her her garden. And we're there and we're working. It was just like a a flurry of dirt flying everywhere. And and by the time it was all done, yes, the weeds were gone, but so were some of her favorite plants. (laughs) And uh, we brought tools, but we also borrowed some from her and some of those kind of got broken because they were ancient and brittle. And uh, and so it, it ended up what I wanted to be this thing of kindness ended up for her being really tough. She was like, oh, I'm really mad. You guys, you guys, you know, took out my garden. And 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 so I, I started working from the moment I, t- I heard that she was upset with us. I, I worked to try to get, you know, replace the tools and we're replacing bushes and things that we didn't know weren't weeds. We're replacing those things. We're doing all this work for her. And, and over and over, she would just keep coming back to my pastor and just saying, it's not, it's not enough. And she was just so persistent, like it's just not enough. And I'd do more and it would never be enough. And she just kept coming. You got to You got to get after that guy. Eventually, I think she just kind of wanted me dead. <laughs> which I'm glad the board didn't go for that. You know, I'm glad they're like, eh, there's a lot of paperwork in that. And so they didn't go for killing me. But, but there was just no, there was no solving it for her. But she was incredibly persistent. But I think that was a persistent prayer about, around something that wasn't a great prayer. So the combo that we're looking for here is not only that, that we go to the right judge, that being God, not going to our gossip-loving friend, but we go to God. And in doing so, we also bring to God the right prayer, one that matches God's heart. And when we get those two things together, this tells us to pray persistently, saying, God, I, I want justice right here, and I don't see it. So I'm going to cry out again, please bring justice. And I'm going to cry out again, and I don't give up. Some of you have been crying out for a long, long time for justice. Don't give up. 
Ask and keep asking. Work and keep working. Galatians 6, don't get weary in well-doing because in time we will see the harvest. Because the truth that we see clearly from this passage is this. God is bigger than any barrier. In this parable, the barrier was an unjust judge, and yet God overcame it. So what's your barrier? Is it your mean landlord? Is it your nosy in-law? Is it your toxic boss? Is it a, a dream that seems delayed in coming to pass? Is it a grief that refuses to subside? Don't give up. The, this widow was undeterred. She kept coming to the judge. The question is, will we? Will we pray prayers of faith saying, God, I may not know when or how you will do it, but I know you will do it. Because God's justice comes about through persistent prayer. That's the first thing. Here's the second. God's justice comes about through humble prayer. Let's continue the passage. Luke 18, 9 to 14. Big voices go to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here we see this really important relationship. It's the relationship between mercy and justice that when God brings justice, he always joins that justice with his mercy. Both are who God is. And so the truth revealed in this passage is that in our quest for justice, we must recognize that without mercy, God's justice would destroy us. Here's what I mean. Our first reaction often when someone hurts us is this, God, get them. <laughs> I don't care how you get them, but you got to get them, okay? I, I leave it up to you what you're going to do. You got to give them a spanking. You can decide what it looks like. You can go lightning bolt if you want. You could open up a hole in the earth. You can go locust. You could flood their phone with calls from scam likely. Those are fun. Uh, your choice, God, but get them. We're quick to go there, yet we're much, much slower to admit how much we have hurt others, to admit the mistakes that we have made along the way. And so if God is consistent, if he is to be consistent in his judgment, and he is, we should then get the same punishment, right? If not worse. 
that's the dangerous edge of desiring justice. Full justice from God reveals our own guilt. We love God's justice when it's applied elsewhere, but not so much when it's pointed at us. And as this passage identifies, we do things to fool ourselves into thinking that God's justice will find no fault with us. Like we've taken the crosshairs of God's justice off of our own center mass. Nothing to judge here, God. We're, we're perfect because we've checked all the right religious boxes. We've correctly answered all the important religious questions, all the while forgetting that in doing so, we are walking in what could be called the fountainhead of all sin, pride. Saying, I don't need you to help me, God. No, I just need you to give me my trophy. I don't need your mercy, God. I just want my medal. That's what the Pharisees show us in this story. And in so many different ways, we're tempted to act the same. We think we want God's justice, forgetting that none of us should ever desire God's justice without God's mercy. And if that is true for us, then it's also true for our enemies. I think we make a mistake in our understanding about how justice applies to someone who hurt us. Think of it like this, someone who caused you, think of someone who caused you real pain. And often we think that, that us getting justice is the moment that they finally get corrected that they finally go to jail or they finally admit they were wrong or they finally face some consequences. We think that's our moment of justice. We think that is justice for us and it's not. It's justice for them has nothing to do with us. Their consequence, their penalty does not give justice to me. So you know what does give justice? To me, here's what gives justice to me. My justice is found when my life is no longer affected by the pain that another brought me. That's my justice. That is justice for me. That whatever you did no longer affects my reactions. It no longer makes me fearful or vengeful or angry or depressed or distant. I'm free of the influence that their wound caused me. My justice is found when Jesus heals me so fully that no part of that past negatively affects me in my present life. That I'm whole, that I'm free. And that is a function of God's mercy as he brings about my justice. It's saying, God, you will deal with whoever hurt me in a way that's specific to them. That's your justice for them. But my justice is found when you speak to the places that died in my heart because of them and you ask them to rise and live. 
that's my justice. And that's the justice that is found when I beat my breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Don't let me stay here. I need you. It's a prayer of humility. God's justice comes about through humble prayer. That's the second thing here is the last thing. God's justice comes about through dependent prayer. Luke 18, 15 to 17. Let's read it together. Big voices go. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This is the promise of God's justice to the vulnerable. It's for those who aren't in power, those who don't have a lot to give. It's for the marginalized, for the overlooked, for the invisible, and for the misunderstood. For the least. And for those, the promise is this God is fully dependable to those who fully depend on Him. Jesus says to the disciples, who we know as the mature ones, right? <laughs> These folks that think they have all the answers because they're the grown ups. And Jesus says, actually, the answer for you grown ups is to be more like these kids because they are all how you're supposed to be. And, and people have had different thoughts about what particular childlike traits uh, are a reflection of God's kingdom, a key to God's kingdom. One of my favorite ones that people bring up is the fact that, that it's the innocent purity of children that Jesus is refer referring to here, to which I usually respond with, I don't know what kids you've been around lately, but... <laughs> Not all like that. I mean, I mean, some of them are. I mean, there is a, certainly sometimes, you know, glimpses of that innocent purity. In fact, I was just met a little uh, young man this week. He's uh, four, I think, going on five. His name's Andrew. And, and the way he introduced himself was, hi, my name's Andrew. Uh, this is my haircut. It's, it's short. I'm this tall. Uh, my legs go from here to here. That's, that's me. I'm Andrew. <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's great. Thanks for for describing yourself to that. You know, that was just a very sweet way of introducing yourself. But uh, not every interaction I've seen in kids has been innocent. In fact, I, I can remember uh, when our kids were little, when Ethan was a toddler, we had a, a, a nursery room or a toddler room at, at the church that we were at, and that place was like Thunderdome. I mean, it was rough. And you'd see little girls come out with bloody noses and, and stuff. And, and I remember watching through the window and seeing Ethan get hit with an inflatable hammer from a kid. Just bam, you know, and I'm like, oh, and Ethan was really cool about it. He was just looking at the kid like, why are you going to do that? But I remember as a parent thinking, oh, I'll show you hammer time. It's, it's coming, you know, we're going to take We're going to deal with this now. <laughs> so, so it's not always this beautiful purity that comes out of the life of children. But what do we expect? They live with us. Okay. So what is the posture then that Jesus is referring to here? I think one good candidate would be this. It's a posture of dependence. 
kids, by their nature, by their place in life, they receive. Kids follow. Kids trust. Kids need us. And Jesus is saying that as God's sons and daughters, you're to be the same. You're to take on that posture. Too often we see God's kingdom as something we fight for instead of something we surrender to. Kids get that. They get that they're not in charge, at least most of the time. They understand that they don't hold the power. They surrender to those that they trust. The question is, could we do the same? See, the truth is, surrendering to Jesus is the only way we win the war. That God's justice is not the result of my ability to fight. It, it's actually the result of my ability to follow. And yes, Jesus will bring about his justice. But the only thing that we bring to the, to the table is our obedience. It's not our ability. The world will underestimate that. But Jesus won't. So we have to determine to get dependent because God's justice comes about through dependent prayer. I'll wrap up with this. If there is a passage in scripture that describes to me in striking detail what God's justice looks like compared to our justice, it's Matthew 5 what we know as the Beatitudes. And if I'm honest with you, throughout most of my life, when I have read this passage, I've always thought that it was really speaking to someone else, you know. This is for someone out, out there. But as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that these are not just God's promises to someone else, they are that, but they're also God's promises to me, promises of justice to me, to us. These are the promises of God's justice. And I know so many of us are longing for that justice. So as we finish, I want to just speak these words of Jesus over you. I've personalized the language a bit so that we can understand that these promises are not just God's promises for someone out there, but they're God's promise to me. So here's the words of Jesus over our lives. Here's the justice of God. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, you will be shown mercy. Blessed are you who are pure in heart, for you will see God. 
Blessed are you, the peacemaker, for you will be called the children of God. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted because of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That, friends, is the ultimate expression of God's justice. And I get it, we only see glimpses now. But in Christ, one day, we will see it fully. And although each of us, every day, we see the failings of the justice of this world, we are also called to pray for the fullness of God's justice to break through, to be lived out in us and through us. We are called to enter the courtroom of he who hears our cry and answers. Will we do so? Will we desire justice enough to trust and depend on the one who is justice? Will we pray to God? If we would do so, the virtue of justice will not only be seen in our lives, it will be seen in our world. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.